a few minutes ago, we sang that song, Is He Worthy? Which begins with the question, do you feel the world is broken? You probably don't have to think too long about that. You know the world's broken, right? You read it in the news. You hear it in the stories your friends tell you. You feel it in the experiences you face. Our world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so this morning, I want to help us think about that. The question for each of us living in our broken world isn't when we'll have to come to grips with the fact that life's not fair, but how we'll respond to it when we do. So maybe you're there today. You know what it means to suffer unjustly. Or you're stuck in a dead-end job. Maybe your kids have walked away from the faith. Maybe you're processing health stuff, grieving the loss of a loved one, trying to work through the trauma of past experiences, or just the all-encompassing frustration that you had some expectations about your life and they haven't worked out. And so you're trying to figure out what to do. And I look at this story of Jesus, betrayed, arrested, condemned, and mocked, and find so much hope for my life. Because it tells me that my God isn't distant and removed from the stuff I'm going through and have been through and will go through before I die. But when he could have stayed in heaven, secure, receiving the glory of all his angels, he willingly gave up heaven to enter into our brokenness and become a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And when the world had done its worst and they laid him in a tomb, he got up victorious again. Because of that, I know that however bad my life is, there's hope for me. And there's hope for you. As long as you live in our broken world, you will face injustice. But if you know Jesus, you can stake your hope on the justice of God. That's what this story teaches us, and that's what I hope to prove to you this morning. And I hope you'll leave here today able to deal with whatever it is you're facing with hope. I got two reasons why I think it's okay to stake your hope on the justice of God in the midst of injustice. And the first one is this. The story teaches us that God uses the injustices we suffer to accomplish his plan for our lives. God uses the injustices we suffer to accomplish his plan for our lives. Now, I feel the need to prove this to you because it's not the way most people think. I think most people believe somewhere within their soul that good things are supposed to happen to good people and bad things are supposed to happen to bad people. And it's only occasionally that the universe loses this sense of order. 
I believe that because we have all kinds of sayings that sort of drive this home. What goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. And we even, I don't guess you genuinely believe in karma. Most people think there's some kind of cosmic, karmic force that's going to balance out the scales of justice in the universe. Just give it enough time, they'll get what's coming to them. And yet this story disproves that. I mean, I want you to think about it. There has never been a better, kinder, gentler person than Jesus of Nazareth. Never. I mean, of all we know about his life, we can't find one thing to discredit him. I mean, everywhere he went in ancient Palestine, he showed love. He healed sick people, opened the eyes of the blind, helped people who'd never been able to walk jump up and run around. I mean, he fed hungry people. He delivered people from demonic possession. He overcame social and ethnic boundaries to show kindness to the lowest of the low. And to top it all off, he called out the powerful and the well-to-do and the religious people who took advantage of the poor and laid heavy burdens on the people of God. I mean, Jesus lived the kind of life that we all want to live, that even the most justice-minded people of our day have to acknowledge as an example of pure, selfless love. And what does that kind of love get you in a broken world? I mean, after three years of pouring his heart out for mankind, one of his closest friends, a man named Judas that he had hand-selected to carry on his mission after he was gone, conspired with his enemies to sell him for 30 pieces of silver so that they could condemn him for a crime he never committed, torture him, and crucify him on a cross. That's not fair. That's not the way it's supposed to be. To top it off, if you work your way through this passage and dig through the details of the story, you see it's not just one injustice Jesus suffers, but eight. Maybe you'll go home today and look at this for yourself, but here's how I see it. In verses 43 and 45, Jesus was betrayed by a friend, injustice one. 46 to 49, he was treated as a criminal and robber, number two. 50 to 52, he was abandoned by his friends and suffered alone. After all he'd done for them, that's how they repay him. He was given a sham trial where the outcome was predetermined, verses 53 to 55. He was falsely accused, 56 to 59, lied against. 60 and 61, he was pressured to testify against his will. 62 to 64, he was condemned for a crime he didn't commit. In 65, he was mistreated and abused while in custody. That's eight injustices. I mean, any one of those, I imagine, if you were in those circumstances and you faced any one of those, you'd ask, what did I do to deserve this? And Jesus keeps his mouth shut. Suffers in virtual silence. I don't get that. I understand the disciples. 
they're, they're like a mirror for me of how I would react if I were in their shoes. The way I see it, there's three basic ways you can respond to injustices in your life. Number one, you can retaliate against them. That's what happens in verse 47. Mark says, one who was standing there drew his sword, struck the slave of the high priest, and cut off his ear. John tells us in John 18.10, that man was Peter, and the servant's name was Malchus. I get Peter. I understand that. When stuff like this happens to me, my first reaction is to get even, to defend myself, to retaliate against the injustice I feel. Who do you think you are? Tell me this. Look at, look at all of this that I've done. I don't deserve this. Most of us try to get even when we suffer injustice and to right the wrong that we perceive to balance out the scale, even if that means taking justice in our own hands. But Jesus doesn't do that. Your second option when you face injustice is to try to escape it. That's verses 50 and 51. Mark tells us, They all left him and fled, and a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. The disciples found themselves in this unjust situation. I mean, you imagine it. We're not going into the details of it, but... Hopefully your mind allowed you to see the scene of Jesus there with his disciples and Judas striding toward him, maybe the crowd hiding just behind the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas walks up to him and kisses him. And when he does, they break out from behind the trees and rush upon Jesus and his disciples. In the fray, there are flashes of swords. Strong men are grabbing and trying to bind them in handcuffs or ropes. And disciples realize, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm I don't, not sure I signed up for this. They're after Jesus, every man for himself. And they get out of there. There's even one of them. Apparently a guy who showed up late to the party, wrapped in a toga. Commentators think maybe it's Mark who's identifying himself. But regardless, a young man shows up late to the party wearing only a toga, and they grab him, and they got his clothes, and he says, hey, I'm not ready for this, and he shakes free of his clothes and runs away. And I think if you look at most people in unjust circumstances, they just kind of want to ignore it or escape it. They turn to all kinds of different things. They start drinking themselves to sleep at night because they can't deal with it. Turn to harder drugs. They go on vacations, try to get out. Yeah, I just need to change the scenery. Some of us turn off the news and try to isolate ourselves from the world because, man, it is broken, and I'm not sure I can deal with it. But there's Jesus in the middle of it all, not trying to run away, but willingly offering his hands to his accusers. See, what Jesus does is totally different, totally counterintuitive, totally different than the way you or I would react if we were in those circumstances. He didn't retaliate, didn't escape it. He just trusted God through it. We see that in verses 48 and 49. He doesn't ignore the injustice. He says, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? It's like he acknowledges the fact that they're overreacting and that their response to him doesn't make sense. I'm a preacher, guys. You don't need a SWAT team, okay? I've been every day. You know the kind of man I am. You know the kind of things I've been teaching. 
You could have seized me at any point, and I would have gone willingly, but you've showed up here, armed to the teeth, ready for a fight. This doesn't make sense. It's not right. But this has taken place that all the scriptures might be fulfilled. See, Jesus doesn't ignore the injustice he suffered, but he does take it and settle it within his overarching knowledge of God's plan. He knows what God is up to, and he knows exactly what the unjust suffering he's facing is going to accomplish. You could turn over to Isaiah 53, a passage we come to again and again and again during the final week of Jesus' life, and you hear what Isaiah saw about God's suffering servant. He said in verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, and like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he'd done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. I mean, Jesus saw the injustices being perpetrated against him, all eight of them. He knew what was coming and had been telling his disciples for weeks. But when the time came and the hammer fell, and there he was in the darkest moment of his life, he trusted God through it all because he saw what God intended to accomplish through him. Though he was innocent and his arrest was unjust, he saw how his death was going to accomplish the salvation of his people. You want to talk about fair? Nothing about Jesus' circumstances are fair. Nothing about it is. We're going to talk about fair. The Bible says that every last one of us has sinned against a just and holy God. And someday we'll give an account for the life we've lived. And he would be completely justified. Oh, Lord, if you count afflictions, who could stand? If he dealt fairly with us, every last one of us would be cast away from his presence for all eternity, and he would be right to do that. But instead, Jesus, the sinless one, suffered those injustices so that you and I could be set free. Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written... Every person who hangs on a tree is cursed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the gospel tells us that we deserve God's punishment. And Jesus suffered it in our place so that we could go free. He inverts the scales of justice. The innocent being condemned so the condemned could be declared innocent. And while his suffering is unique and unrepeatable, the authors of the New Testament tell us time and again that it, it also serves as an example for the kind of thing that God wants to do in our life. He doesn't just want to save us, but he wants to demonstrate to us the way we're supposed to respond when we face the same kind of situations. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. He said, you've been called for this since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example 
to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God, who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, for you're continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Listen, I, I can stand up here. I mean, it would be the height of presumption for me to look y'all in the face and tell you that when life's not fair and you suffer unimaginable injustices against yourself, that God has a plan for it. It'd be presumptuous. It'd be foolish. It'd be pastoral malpractice. Unless the scriptures told us the same thing. And the Bible says that God has a plan for every injustice we face. That somehow in his sovereign and mysterious wisdom, that every good thing that happens to us and every bad thing that happens to us goes into this perfect crucible and gets melted down and refined so that we come out on the other side trusting, loving, and believing Jesus more than we did before. And so we follow in his footsteps, entrusting ourselves to God through every injustice we suffer because we know that he uses them to accomplish his plan for our lives. So Fanny Crosby had an interesting perspective on this. Fanny Crosby, great hymn writer, she wrote like 8,000 hymns. And we sing some of them here at CBC. She lived 150 years ago. Uh, and you may not know this about her. I did not until this week. Fanny Crosby was blind. And she was not born blind, but at six weeks of age, an incompetent doctor performed a medical procedure on her that rendered her blind for the rest of her life. And she spoke openly about this, talked about it. You know, how could a lady like Fanny Crosby, who wrote so many great hymns, be dealt that hand in life. What's up with that? She said, what seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life, and I thank him for it. I truly believe it was his intention that I should live all my days in physical darkness so as to be better prepared to sing his praises and to incite others to do the same. Now I hear you. Don't you say that? That's just the sentimentalization of suffering by an old lady. Right? She's just trying to make good out of bad. And maybe. Or is it the genuine hope and confidence of a person who's staked everything on the goodness and justice of God? That even in the darkest storm, it's possible for us to see God's kind and loving hand to see that maybe he does have a purpose for us. He had a purpose for Jesus, height of injustice, and yet it accomplished his purpose. May, may it be that God's plans for your life to conform you into the image of his son, to teach you the depths of his love for you, to show you his kindness through everything, could it be that the only way to get you where he wants you to be is to take these injustices, these unfair experiences, and reshape them for your good? And so I believe it's totally right to hope in the justice of God because he takes these 
injustices we suffer and uses them to accomplish his plan for our lives. But number two, number two, God will reverse every injustice we face and establish a kingdom where his justice prevails. It's the second reason you can stake your hope on the justice of God. And I get this from the second half of the story where Jesus ends up at the high priest Caiaphas's house. This is a pre-dawn trial happening against every regulation the Sanhedrin had made for itself. They did not carry this out according to protocol, but it's obvious from their actions that they weren't concerned about that. They had one goal that morning, and it was to find some charge that could get Jesus on the cross. And so they bring Jesus in handcuffs to the high priest's house, and enough of the other leaders show up that they can have a quorum or something, and they start trying to find somebody who can lay a charge against him that sticks. And you get the high priest's frustration, I hope, where they're throwing out all these crazy accusations against Jesus, and the high priest expects him to try to defend himself. Maybe he's expecting him to perjure himself or something. And so he's hoping that Jesus is going to speak up and say, no, 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 I never said that, and, but he won't. He's silent, and so the high priest gets exasperated, and in verse 61, he says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is an amazing statement from Jesus. Of course, he says, I am, the Greek, ego eimi. This is the statement that God used with Moses in the burning bush. Who should I say sent me? I am that I am. And Jesus can't deny it. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I, I am who I am. I am. But what's startling about it is not that Jesus uses that special phrase, but how different it is from every other instance in the Gospels where Jesus had an opportunity to publicly identify himself. I mean, Jesus has closely guarded his true identity from everyone from the beginning of his public ministry. He shows up in the synagogue in Capernaum, and a demon-possessed comes up to him and says, We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, Be silent and come out of him. Not long after that, a leper comes up to him and says, if you're willing, make me clean. And he says, I am willing, be clean. And he cleanses him, and he says, don't tell anybody what happened. Stay silent. When he raises up Jairus' daughter, takes Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, and John, into the bedroom where this little girl, less than 12 years old, is laying dead, and Jesus resurrects her, and he looks at the room, people in the room, and he says, y'all don't say anything about this to anybody. He takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountaintop, and they see a vision of his glory. They see Moses and Elijah. And on the way down the mountain, he says, don't y'all tell anybody about what y'all saw until after my resurrection. I mean, everywhere Jesus has gone, he has closely guarded his true identity. There were many times when people would have crowned him king and gone to war for him, and he refused to let them. And so it's interesting that here in this moment, in handcuffs before the high priest... He finally publicly declares who he is. I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. There are thousands of other people who would have heard that and fallen before his feet and worshipped him, went home, told their family, we found the Christ, let's go. Instead, the high priest falls to his knees and tears his clothes off. He's He's undone. And the reason is not because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. 
there were messiahs who'd come before Jesus, claimed to be Messiah, and people had lined up behind them and gone to war with them. And there would be messiahs after Jesus the Jews would fall in line behind and fight against the Romans with. So it wasn't just the claim to be the Messiah that found him in the crosshairs. Instead, it was the way he quoted the Old Testament about himself. He quotes two passages. First one, he says, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. The quotation comes from Psalm 110. It's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It was written by David to be a psalm used on the day of coronation of his descendants. The key verse, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy a footstool underneath your feet, was something that David must have seen by the Holy Spirit. Prophetically through time, he saw that one of his descendants would go far beyond anything that David had ever achieved. He wouldn't just build a kingdom and a house for himself, wouldn't just build a house for God, but that God would look at him and fulfilling the promise he'd made to David that he'd always have a son seated on the throne and that he'd be God to him and he'd be a son to God. David saw that this son, this descendant, would be invited right to the place of power at God's right hand and he would somehow share in divine authority. He would act on God's behalf over all the world. I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He also quoted Daniel 7.13. There's a vision Daniel had of God's heavenly throne room. He said, I saw one like a son of man ride in on the clouds. He got out of the clouds and he walked up to the Ancient of Days and he received from him glory, dominion, and authority to rule over all the nations of the earth. It's, I think the Old Testament mirror to what Mike opened up for us with today from Revelation 5. When Jesus walks into heaven and is seen as the Lamb, that was slain. And they say, who is worthy to open up the scrolls? And only Jesus is. See, John saw the fullness of what David only hoped to see, what he hoped to understand. And in Jesus' mouth, these scriptures were earth-shattering. Here the high priest sees this preacher, this healer, rabble-rouser, standing before him in handcuffs. Now, if he claimed to be the Messiah, that'd be funny. No self-respecting Messiah would ever let himself get put in handcuffs. So, easily brush that to the side. But Jesus is claiming to be acting on God's behalf, to possess all authority and dominion, so that their little court that they've put together actually exists under his authority. And he loses it. It's blasphemy. Blasphemy is a law uh, worthy of, uh, was a crime punishable by death in the law of Moses. It means to treat something that's holy as common. And for Jesus to say that he's acting on God's behalf when it's not, not true is the height of hubris. It's blasphemy. And so they condemn him to death for it. But of course, everything he said was true. And Jesus' hope that someday his enemies would see him seated at God's right hand, possessing all heavenly authority, was not hope misplaced. And next week we're going to see it. They're going to deliver him over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate's going to wash his hands of the situation. 
He's going to have him scourged and tortured. He's going to have him crucified on the cross. And at the end of Friday, Jesus is going to breathe his last and die. His disciples are going to come. They're going to take down his body, and they're going to bury it in a borrowed tomb, borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, that's meeting here to condemn him. And they're going to roll a heavy stone in front of it and make sure that the guards are watching over it just so his disciples can't steal his body. And then on the third day, when the ladies show back up to finish the job of preparing his body for permanent burial, they're going to find the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. And they're going to see him resurrected. Who are you looking for? Don't you know? I'm the God of the living. You're not going to find me in some kind of tomb. And he's going to reveal himself to his disciples. And then he's going to ascend into heaven, but not until he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And right now, he strolled into heaven's court, and he took his place at God's right hand, and he is ruling and reigning right now until that day when he returns and every last one of his enemies is put under his feet. And then every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. The ones in heaven, the ones on earth, and the ones under the earth. Nobody will be able to deny who he is. You see, you're not wrong to stake your hope on the justice of God because he's going to reverse every injustice and he's going to establish a kingdom where his perfect justice prevails. Jesus is the fulcrum between the injustices you and I face in this life and the justice that God promises to bring for us in his forever kingdom. He suffered the injustice, and he brings the justice. Listen to how he talks about it in Revelation chapter 21. You know, the end is already written. He says, The tabernacle of God is among men, and he'll dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Listen, there is a day coming when every injustice, every unfair experience you've ever faced will be reversed. In God's kingdom, there's no cancer. There's no stock market crashes. There's no fraud. There's no injustice. It's just all things new. And Jesus Christ is living proof that that is God's intention. It's settled. It's fact. Someday, he will make all things new. Because of that, that means the worst injustices you and I face here on earth are temporary. They're not the final word on the matter. They feel that way. And sometimes they may look that way from outside in. But in reality, our present suffering is not worth being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. And that means the challenge for you and me is to refuse to let our world shape our thinking about the fairness of life. That we refuse to let the value structure of a broken world determine our attitude to the things we face. We bring them 
constantly back to God and we say, Lord, you see what I'm going through. You see how unfair and difficult it is. But the preacher said, I can stake my hopes on your justice. Help me to see it and understand. Help me to believe it, that there is a hope stored up for me in heaven that's kept imperishable, undefiled, and unfading for me. And then it's every day doing what the author of the letter to the Hebrews said. It's laying aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely to us, and we run our race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and suffered the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. He says, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Listen, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, as long as you live in a broken world, you're going to face injustice. The question is how you're going to deal with it. Are you going to get angry and bitter? Seek to retaliate against it? Are you going to try to detach and escape it? using whatever means possible to numb yourself against the brokenness of the world? Are you going to follow Jesus' example and trust him through it, saying, Jesus, you have seen far worse. You suffered far worse for me. Help me to stay the course and trust you no matter what life comes my way. Tanya, you can stake your hope on the justice of God. You bow your head with me this morning.